Hello and welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and today we're going to be talking about cricopharyngeal muscle dysfunction with laryngologist Dr. Greg Dion. Dr. Dion, thanks so much for being here today. John, thanks a lot. I'm looking forward to contributing and being part of ENT in a Nutshell. Great. Well, we've got a lot of exciting material to cover today, but we'll just start in our usual fashion with disease presentation. So, Dr. Dion, how do patients with CP muscle dysfunction typically present? Oh, I guess you're starting with a zinger here. That's uh, a little bit tricky, John. Uh, unlike uh, thyroid surgery or tonsillectomy, uh, patients often you know, present with a really vague and nonspecific findings. So you might see someone who's coming into your clinic with a cough or trouble swallowing uh, or just even throat clearing. And so you can envision how that overlaps with a lot of the other things um, and diseases that we deal with as an otolaryngologist. So uh, you got to find a way to break that down. And I, and I think one really nice way um, to do that is to look at the epidemiology of, of what's the age of the patient, right? We know that um, cricopharyngeal muscle dysfunction is more common in the aged population. So you're less likely to see that in a young person. So that can be helpful. You also can look at like where these patients are coming from. Are they coming from a gastroenterologist? Are they coming from a speech language pathologist, uh, a neurologist, or a medicine doctor? Um, and so, and so that gives you some uh, mindset of of where they're coming from. So someone from GI is more likely to have a cricopharyngeal muscle dysfunction problem than say someone that's just coming from general medicine with a cough. Um, some some of the symptoms though that are are guiding hints would be globus, meaning the sense that there's something in the back of the throat, uh, frequent throat clearing, and that's also associated with the sense that they can't get some food down. As in, you know, oh doc, I take a drink of water and there's just there's just something there. It doesn't seem to all go down. I got to swallow two times. So you could talk about a double swallow. And and I mentioned you know they may have trouble swallowing perhaps solids or liquids or, or some combination thereof. Um, and then and then there's some obvious things that, that can be hints, such as uh, aspiration pneumonia history, meaning that you're already thinking that they probably have some sort of esophageal or upper esophageal dysfunction. Uh, so I, I realize that that's kind of a hodgepodge of things, but when we start thinking about cricopharyngeal uh, muscle dysfunction, it's really a broad topic. And so you start thinking about things that would happen in the, in the pharynx um, when you're not clearing stuff, such as like throat clearing, cough, aspiration. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Um, and before transitioning to pathophysiology, I think this topic really lends itself well to talking about some normal anatomy and normal physiology. Um, could we first just review the anatomy of the UES, the upper esophageal sphincter? Yeah, absolutely, John. So even starting with our with our naming conventions, we we get ourselves into you know, conflicting stories depending upon what you read. So what frequently is discussed as the UES or upper esophageal sphincter is often referred to as well as the pharyngoesophageal segment. You know, when we look into the literature, the, the beauty of that PES or pharyngoesophageal segment naming convention is it really tells you about that area that you're looking at, not just one muscle. Because when you think about it, if you look at the UES or the PES, really what it's comprised of is the inferior constrictors from your pharynx, the muscle fibers of the cricopharyngeus muscle itself, as well as the proximal esophageal muscle fibers all kind of coming together. So not to go too far down a rabbit hole, though I'm, I'm never one to resist a good rabbit hole, um, you can look at the 
cricopharyngeal muscle itself is a, a C-shaped muscle. So it, it's coming off the back portion of the cricoid. Um, interestingly enough, there's no midline raffe as it comes around the posterior part of the pharynx. So there's no midline raffe associated with the cricopharyngeal muscle. It's approximately one to two centimeters in height if we're looking on a person standing up. So you're talking about one to two centimeters in height made predominantly of type one slow titch fibers. And so you can kind of think about that makes sense, right? We're not talking about, you know, your bicep as you're, you know, out there doing curls to look good for, you know, um, people in the gym. The slow twitch fibers reflect kind of the normal, you know, function of what you'd find in the uh, cricopharyngeal and other smooth muscles. Uh, Then interestingly enough, um, it reacts different than a lot of, of other muscles. So the maximal tension in the CP muscle has been found at about 1.7 times uh, its basal length, predominantly with a, a high level of connective tissue. And so this is really similar to what you see kind of in the heart, meaning as it kind of as the heart fills, the contractile strength increases. And so similarly, as the you distend the PES or the cricopharyngeal muscle, its contractile ability strengthens too. Um, and then when we talk about anatomy, we always include um, innervation patterns. And so the innervation of the cricopharyngeal muscles uh, variable. So if you read the literature, you'll find reliable findings of recurrent laryngeal nerve, superior laryngeal nerve, as well as cranial nerve nine innervation patterns. So again, uh, as with the presenting symptoms, there's a lot of non-specific issues when you're talking about the PES. And then when you're looking for where does that lie anatomically in the, the back of the throat? Uh, it lies just anterior to the uh, buccopharyngeal fascia, which obviously is, is just anterior to the retropharyngeal space, which posteriorly you run into the alar fascia, then the danger space and the prevertebral fascia. So it lays in those fascial planes that we as otolaryngologists um, find so important for tracking infections and anatomical dissection. So those are the kinds of things that I think are really important to understand is the space we're working on, how it's innervated, and what's in that general area. And what about normal swallow physiology? How does that work? Oh, that's another good one, John. We could spend a whole hour talking just about swallow physiology, but for the purposes of understanding the cricopharyngeal muscle function, we can think of a normal swallow um, starting as the oral preparatory phase. So in that phase, right, you're preparing that bolus, you're chewing it, you're grinding it, the enzymes are starting to work in the saliva, you're, you're making that bolus smooth so it can then be uh, transferred into the pharynx. And then the pharynx itself squeezes. As the pharynx squeezes, the larynx moves anteriorly, superiorly, opening the uh, pharyngoesophageal segment the weight of the bolus then moves back, rests upon the epiglottis, causing the epiglottis to flop over the airway. This then passes into the esophagus. Then the pharynx relaxes, the larynx descends and moves back posteriorly, and now you're in the esophageal phase of swallow. So that's a really kind of broad strokes overview of what happens in the swallow, but it gives you a sense of how dysfunction along that pathway could create a problem. Yeah, I agree. I think I think it's really helpful. And what what about specifically with CP dysfunction? How how are patients' normal swallow physiology affected by this disease? Yeah, sure. So looking back on what we were just talking about, you could imagine where does the CP fall in that pathway? Well, 
the cricopharyngeal muscle has to be able to open, meaning be stretched open passively and actively, uh, allowing things to go through. So any dysfunction that affects that would be problematic. So say, for example, you have a hypertonic disorder. So maybe there's radiation-induced fibrosis of the muscle, which prevents it from stretching out. So you have fibrosis problems. You could have some kind of muscle dysfunction, muscle dystrophy. You get hypertonicity with muscle dysfunction, and now it's so tight that you can't get it to loosen up. You might also have a disorder in which it's flaccid. So if you have a neuromuscular dysfunction in which you have a flaccid UES, you could be predisposed to regurgitation, aerophasia, meaning swallowing air, subsequent burping. I can also be um, affected by a neurologic insult. So, for example, perhaps you had a stroke or ALS and you have uh, neurologic issues. So anything that would affect the nerve flow, so stroke, nerve injury, et cetera, is going to alter the the timing and the way that the CP muscle is going to function in uh, conjunction with all of those other swallowing physiologies. So you could imagine if for whatever reason your uh, muscle was kind of slow to react, you'd now have a pharynx squeezing. So your pharyngeal squeeze is pushing against a tight pharyngoesophageal segment or cricopharyngeal muscle, and in which case the bolus isn't easily passing through. And the things that you would end up with would be like retained bolus, et cetera. And so these things all kind of contribute together and could create, you could see how any dysfunction there would, would predispose somebody for having an interrupted uh, swallowing physiology. Yeah, and, and you started to get into this already, but is there anything else on your differential for CP muscle dysfunction that you're thinking of that could be overlapping in in terms of their presentation and whatnot? Yeah, this is one of those things we look back and we kind of, we kind of laugh about, well, what does the patient look like that shows up with CP muscle dysfunction? Well, that's kind of a vague statement. That's one of those picture covers for diversity on the on the magazine where you've got a little bit of everything. Well, so we have to make sure we we rule out all of those other things that could be contributing. So we get down at the end of the day to just the cricopharyngeal muscle. So for example, you might have a, a, a weakness um, leading to a diverticulum. So a, a Zanker's diverticulum, a Killian Jameson's diverticulum. Uh, you could have other things that create dysphagia. So an esophageal web, uh, those can be a little tricky to diagnose. You find an esophageal web that could cause trouble. Um, you can have eosinophilic esophagitis. That's another one of those that's really hard to diagnose. And so we're quick to kind of forget about it or diagnose it without fully going through uh, a real careful workup. You could have a motility disorder. So when we think about, you know, does that patient have secondary cricopharyngeal muscle dysfunction? And this is one of my big pet peeves is we say, oh, hey, there's a CP issue. You know, you're going through your diagnosis, you're talking to someone, you're like, oh, yeah. But at the end of the day, you got to make sure that that CP dysfunction is not secondary to another problem, such as motility. You could have lower esophageal sphincter achalasia, and again, causing a secondary um, cricopharyngeal muscle dysfunction. In addition, a careful history would elucidate other potential reasons to have these swallowing complaints. It could be an autoimmune disease where you get autoimmune esophageal dysfunction. Uh, and then there's some simple things that we tend to you know, see a lot and frequently in uh, otolaryngology practice that really need to be worked up. Now, has this person been worked up for you know, seasonal allergies, food allergies, post-nasal drip, uh, sinus, sinus disease? And so kind of working through those things as you kind of rule those out then you're starting to say, yeah, the findings that I'm seeing on physical exam testing, et cetera, that are consistent with cricopharyngeal muscle dysfunction 
aren't actually secondary to or because of another issue. Yeah, and just building off of that discussion, so if you're in clinic and you're seeing someone that you suspect might have CP dysfunction, what does your workup look like? Ooh, yeah, great question. Um, again, you know, I, I, as much as I'd love to uh, kind of be Rachel Ray here and give you a recipe, it's a little bit of, of how that patient presents, right? So, you know, I need to rule out those other disorders. You know, we look back and we say, yep, no zankers, right? So I have to figure out how do I do that? Well, so that patient's now in my clinic. So I get to rely on the good old-fashioned history and physical, right? So some of the things in the history are going to tell me a lot of information. So does that patient have a history of autoimmune disease? Do they uh, have a history of, say, pH-proven gastroesophageal reflux disease? So those things are going to help me understand that. And then there's you know, the next level of exam, right? So we can do some simple things like a clinical swallowing evaluation. And I think this is really underappreciated. We're ready, you know, we've got a scope in our hands and we're ready just to go after that patient with the scope. But, but the reality is kind of sitting there and watching them talk and maybe take a sip of water. And you'll notice, do they drink that water from their water bottle in one sip and one swallow? Or do they take a sip from the water bottle and then you see them kind of struggle to propel that water and then they have a, what appears to be a, a hard swallow or even a second swallow to get it down. And so those things help. They, they might swallow and start coughing. That's obviously not ideal in your clinic, but th- this is important to, to notice. Kind of depending on your clinical setup, you might watch that patient come down the hall to the clinic room. Now, do they have a, a shuffling gait? Is it clearly a patient with Parkinson's? I mean, we see this all the time. These patients haven't been anywhere else. These are things that we as physicians need to, to be looking at. Do they have, you know, something wrong with their voicing pattern that's going to lead you to believe there could be a neurologic issue contributing to that? So those are some of the easy things before you really kind of get too involved. When you start thinking about what are the, the most useful tests, I, I would start to break them down into ones um, that you can do right there in clinic. So flexible laryngoscopy plays a really important role in understanding what's going on in cricopharyngeal muscle dysfunction. So you want to take your time as you kind of get the, the scope back there um, and, and uh, take an opportunity to look at the overall anatomic function, right? You need to make sure the vocal folds move properly um, because if you have a unilateral paresis or paralysis, that could be predisposing you to um, aspiration and a cough, which you originally thought could be CP dysfunction. One of the great things you can have a patient do is try to blow out against an area with their mouth closed, right? So you puff their cheeks out. I always say puff your cheeks out like a bullfrog. And you can kind of open up those piriform sinuses. You can get the camera in there and see, is there pulling of secretions? Is there, can you see, you know, today's pills in the Zanker's diverticulum in the post-cricoid space? That's, that's possible to do with that maneuver in clinic. Really, it allows you to see what's going on and really be thoughtful with that exam. I'd, I'd take a moment here and say what, one of the things you want to be careful of when you do these exams uh, is you don't want to drown the patient in your uh, nasal spray. So all too often, a technician or, or a, a really eager clinician or resident just sprays multiple cc's of, of lidocaine and afrin in the patient. The patient's coughing everywhere, gagging. Um, certainly not ideal in the in the in the COVID pandemic, but. Uh, you know, the other problem is looking back on what's been done, you can see that if all of that stuff ends up and that lidocaine ends up in the, in the pharynx, you can end up with pulling of secretions that's distracting. So, you know, this is really important to look at. 
And I think the the final thing in clinic you could consider is a, a fees, a functional endoscopic evaluation of swallow. So traditionally, we think of a fees as something just a speech pathologist does. But in reality, this can provide us a lot of information. Remember that depending upon your practice setting, uh, sending that patient out for a different kind of swallow study, A, might cost additional money or not be approved. It's a different visit on a different day. So depending upon your clinic setup, that's either good or bad. Um, and so this is something you could do, provided, again, you haven't you know, gone through and sprayed too much spray in there. And you're going to give them different textures and, and consistencies and volumes of food and kind of see, are you seeing retained bolus? Are you seeing stuff pulling in the secretions? Are you seeing penetration or even aspiration in your exam? And now you're really going to make a, a thoughtful move, you know. as to what you do next. So I'd say, you know, from a clinic standpoint, after you're done doing your complete exam and feeling the neck for, you know, any restriction, if that patient has had, uh, say they've had radiation in the past and you can feel that they don't get hyolaryngeal elevation when they swallow, you know, you're thinking, okay, yeah, I get it. This is probably leading to where we're, we're having trouble. So, so I'd say that that's really what you're thinking when you're in clinic. Um, and certainly not all of your patients need a fees, uh, but you know, it's it's worth considering. So then you have to decide, like, what else can I do for a workup? Well, that that could lead us down a number of of pathways. But you know, um, just as kind of a brief overview, um, from probably least likely to most likely, I guess you could do cricopharyngeal electromyography. Well, that's useful mainly for research. Uh, but it's technically very challenging because you got to put that needle into the CP muscle, which is moving in the neck in the patient with, you know, depending upon your part of the country, varying neck uh, circumferences, uh, which could be quite challenging. And it's hard to really get a reliable reading from that. And so not not commonly done. Um, a little bit more common, but still not the most common yet, would be high-resolution manometry. I promise I won't get I won't get too excited here, but this is a fascinating way for us to understand what's going on in the esophagus itself, right? We're going to learn with HRM or high resolution manometry exactly how that bolus propels all the way from the entrance to the esophagus, and really, if if you look at the the latest data and work, really from the pharynx, and we're measuring some pharyngeal manometry all the way down to the stomach. So, are we seeing you know some uh, failed peristalsis, jackhammer esophagus, or potentially elevated LES pressures. I'd, I'd hesitate to talk about findings on on HRM as far as the UES or PES are concerned, because really at this point, I don't think clinically there's enough data out there to support, you know, making objective measures or or movements forward based on on what you're seeing on on HRM. But I think as far as ruling out some other dysfunctions, it's it's really a key thing that as an otolaryngologist, we need to embrace both um, as a diagnostic means and something that we should be considering participating in. And then I'll kind of move into our two related um, most common studies. One would be your esophagram or your barium swallow. This is where you send the patient down to radiology and they do a study where the patient drinks a large volume of high molecular weight barium which really lets us fill the esophagus and get a good picture. You can see some esophageal wall abnormalities. You'll also see potentially dysmotility. If you look carefully on some patients with eosinophilic esophagitis, you might see some ridging on the edge of the esophagus, and it can be kind of a a hint in some cases. But a lot of times you miss the uh, pharyngoesophageal segment. And 
of course, um, despite growing data farms of, of research, for some reason, it seems that we only get a little bit of data saved out of an esophagram, which happens to be captured at just six frames per second, um, which to me is quite amazing, right? Because there's no way you're watching YouTube at six frames per second. So, And that's kind of what brings us into the video fluoroscopic swallow study. So there's a number of reasons I kind of left this to last and as our like main go-to study. This is recorded at 30 frames per second. So you're really able to tease out the nuances of the swallow all the way from that preparatory phase into the esophagus. And in many cases, you know, depending upon your institution, a lot of these will have an esophageal screen or, or follow through afterwards. And so in this study, the speech pathologist is giving various bolus sizes of you know, solids, liquids, and some mixed consistencies to kind of give some answers as to what's happening in the swallow. And this is where you're going to see evidence of maybe incomplete pharyngoesophageal segment distension with retained bolus above the PES segment. And that's kind of, you can envision in your mind where you would get the proverbial cricopharyngeal bar or CP bar, or depending upon how the speech pathologist might uh, worded as a tissue section pushing off the posterior wall of the esophagus. And so understanding how to interpret that kind of reading is important to say, okay, so the video fluoroscopic swallow study is really going to be one of our key key studies here. So th- those are the kind of things you can order. I, I think um, when you're doing a workup, one of the things you can't forget about is the role of endoscopy. Um, and so we talked a little bit about, about laryngoscopy, and you do that in the clinic with all your patients. But at some point in this workup, you need to consider visualization and or biopsy when needed. And so that, that would take the form of either a transnasal esophagoscope. So in the clinic, you have the patient come in, they swallow the esophagoscope, pass it down to the stomach, and then you can really perform a thorough, good evaluation of the entire length of the esophagus to determine, are we missing any masses, lesions? Is there tracheolization of the esophagus, which is making us think of EOE? Do I see a Schatzky's ring that I can hang my hat on? And these are things that will help you understand. A lot of practices may not have a t and scope in their clinic. And so in those cases, you could send a patient for a formal esophagogastroduodenoscopy. Uh, often this has been done, though, when you look at these patient histories and take a careful, careful history, you'll notice like, oh, I had an EGD two years ago. Here's the report. It looked normal. Well, that's fine because really what you're trying to do with this is rule out the, the big things. Like you really don't want to miss a cancer. You don't want to miss an obvious dysfunction, candida of the esophagus. You don't want to miss any of those things. And then the other thing you can do is if you're planning an intervention and you're down the pathway, you think, hey, I think I know this is going to be CP dysfunction. I think I can intervene and potentially help this person. It's certainly possible to do esophagoscopy at the time of your surgery and the patient's asleep already. It's not too sedation. So without having gone too far off the rails here, you know, and when you asked for a typical workup, you know, that's very nonspecific, but you can imagine that you have all these tools at your disposal and, and the patient's story is going to push you down, you know, kind of one of these pathways. And so, you know, I would say that everybody needs some kind of swallow evaluation, whether it's HRM, esophagram or video swallow. I don't, I don't think you can get away without having at least one of those reasonably to, to, make a diagnosis. And I think there needs to be some form of visualization, be it a T&E, EGD, or esophagoscopy during surgery. So while not trying to give you too much information, hopefully I kind of answered your question on how I might work that up. No, I, I think I think that's very helpful, um, Dr. Dion. I think as we start transitioning to talking about management and whatnot, one, one question I like to ask is, 
you know, when you're counseling these patients that have evidence of uh, cricopharyngeal muscle dysfunction, how do you describe to them the natural history of their disease and what happens if it's left untreated? Yeah, this is a great question. And this is an area where I think that we still don't totally understand yet, right? There's this been this talk for a long time, like, okay, well, yes, two centimeters anchors is no big, it's just going to get bigger. Or is it, or is it, we, you know, don't have a, uh, a series of patients just walking around with zancers for for 50 years that we're able to follow, mainly because we don't find them until they're very old and then they tend not to live 50 years. But that's the kind of thing like we, we don't really fully understand it. So what we can do is be honest with the patients, right? We're, we're that way with with all these, these disorders. We can say, listen, here's what we know. We've done this workup. We know it's not cancer, right? Because we worked all of that up and we're very confident in our our uh, diagnosis. So we can work it up and say, Hey, this is what we think it is. And it may never change. It may not be a problem. Remember, I, you know, I didn't really mention it, but if we looked at esophagrams, um, or, or video foros of people and in, in, in the elderly population and, and well over 10%, um, have a quote unquote CP bar. They may not have symptoms at all, but they have that. So just because you see something doesn't mean it's the problem. Number one, but, you know, it may never change. And so a reasonable thing might be, hey, let's watch this and see if, if it does change. The symptoms aren't bad. Let's see what happens. It's, it's a, an opportunity. And, and sometimes it doesn't. And just that kind of cognitive understanding of what's going on that it's not cancer kind of lets that fall to the back of their mind. I, I tell people, like, you don't realize you're breathing unless I ask you to think about taking a breath in and out. You've been breathing this whole time hopefully if you're not like asleep or crash your car listening to me or something. But, you know, if that's not the case and you're awake, you're breathing, you're just not thinking about it. So if we let the patient understand there's nothing bad and they've forgot about it, it that's um, really helpful. You know, it's possible, of course, that it could get worse, right? And when we talk about patients that are, I, I call them the quote unquote late rad patient, right? So a patient had a radiation and that fibrosis is setting in and you know, they used to go out and uh, toss back a steak and now they're doing milkshake and, and losing some weight. And so I'm saying, well, it, that could be your, your course, right? Your, your disease course. We know that fibrosis could worsen with time if there's no intervention. And then one of the things that could happen with that is aspiration pneumonia. So it's really hard to tell a patient like this is what happens. But I think education and collective decision making really helps you there. Yeah. Um, in the scenario of a symptomatic patient who has evidence of a large obstructing bar on video fluoroscopic squalor study, what, what are the different management options for these patients? Yeah. So in this case, I'm not sure exactly how much per se size matters, right? Because we don't have enough data yet when we look at it and say like, oh, that huge bar um, I think the collective findings of the patient are, are what we really want to think about. So there's an obvious poor distension of the pharyngoesophageal segment. Not a lot of stuff is getting through. There's retained bolus. The patient is coughing after they eat. There's concern. They've been admitted for one aspiration pneumonia. Yeah, we need to do something. So probably the option of observation and reassurance, probably not the best, right? Because this person's clearly having symptoms and trouble. Um, if, if, we were unable to determine if that person had any history of gastroesophageal reflux. A, a pH study to assess um, the actual presence of reflux, which is uh, no one's favorite cup of tea because we'd want to get a pH with impedance, meaning that the patient would be walking around for 24 hours with a little wire out of their nose. And obviously that's not everyone's first 
line of fun. So, so you could give them a trial reflux meds and say, well, you know, maybe, maybe this is related to underlying reflux meds. Cause interestingly enough, we know that if we expose the lower part of your esophagus to acid, right? So if I, you know, held you down and put acid on your lower esophageal sphincter, your upper esophageal sphincter will in turn contract, even if it itself is not exposed to reflux. So as a result, we want to make sure that we didn't miss a reflux, right? Because that's easy. If we if you have reflux and we treat it and your upper esophageal s- symptoms get better, that's fantastic. So those are some easy things. You, you also, believe it or not, there is a, a speech um, component here. Uh, you can do some kind of biofeedback swallowing exercises where where you show the patient they're able to swallow on a flexible laryngoscopy and then they notice and they're swallowing and they, and they do well. I mean, you could do Mendelssohn's maneuver. And then this is kind of like, like you swallow and then you keep that, you keep the larynx elevated, basically a supraglottic swallow to kind of build up the muscle. And that's really truthfully the, the Mendelssohn's maneuver is the only maneuver that's been shown from a swallowing exercise standpoint to, to have some impact on isolated uh, pharyngoesophageal segment dysfunction. As we move down the line, we, we talk about CP or uh, dilation um, versus chemo denervation. So, this is a little complicated because uh, years ago we thought like, well, if it's uh, tight, we can inject Botox. Well, that's going to work if we're talking about that hypertonic state, right? Like this hypertonic and it's not too large. So if it's just a tight hypertonic um, pharyngoesophageal segment, we can do chemo denervation of the cricopharyngeal muscle. And in so doing, we decrease the tonicity and you can get fluids through. However, interestingly enough, if this is what what we had referred to as a big CP bar, you now potentially have created a large flaccid obstruction to the esophagus and in some cases worsening um, their swallow. So you got to be thoughtful in terms of where does where does Botox roll in there? I'd, I'd say a lot of people now, maybe about 20% of the time, will do some Botox. The dilation is, is great because the dilation gives you a variety of options, right? You could do a traditional dilation where the patient goes to sleep and you take either a bougie or a uh, balloon and you dilate the CP under direct visualization. And in so doing, the patient wakes up, goes home, eats food and see if they get better and for how long. Um, Alternatively, a really, a really great way to do this, particularly in patients of whom are not great candidates for general anesthesia, you can go to a procedural suite or or an uh, OR um, though it, it's been reported in the clinic, I, I tend to shy away from that a little bit because of discomfort. And in the, in a procedure room or, or the OR, you can give the patient just a little bit of, say, alfentanil, take a uh, transnasal esophagus scope, put it through the nose, have them swallow it. So now you're in the esophagus, the patient's looking at you, you're all high-fiving, slide a thin guide wire through the esophagus scope, pull it out, and then slide the balloon over the uh, guide wire and follow it in with the esophagus scope. And you can do an awake transnasal balloon dilation. And, and in fact, um, as, as I do uh, not infrequently, you can go in with two balloons, either through the same nostril or another nostril, and so do a double balloon dilation. If if you think about it, the, the best study on the actual shape of that open UES was done in ewes or uh, sheep, and, and they found that it's kind of a kidney bean shape. And so you can envision that two balloons that way work well. If you're doing a transnasal esophageal dilation, then you're kind of stuck with using balloons. If you're doing it under direct, you can use other balloons and bougies. And so, you know, while there's no head-to-head study, there's probably pluses and minuses, right? There's there's not a one-time use for a, a bougie, but there's some thought that the shearing forces versus the lateral portions uh, are different between bougies and 
and balloons yet that hasn't been kind of fully teased out in, in studies. So, you know, say you've moved past that though, right? So you've seen this patient, you tried observation, they didn't like it, they didn't do well, reflux meds didn't help. Um, they weren't really a great candidate for whatever reason or didn't perform well with Mendelssohn's maneuver. And, you know, you did a dilation, the patient came back, brought you Christmas cookies. It was awesome. Everybody's happy. They were doing much better. And then of course, with time, they got worse. And now they're like, yeah, man, I got to do something. So kind of the, the end of the line, so to speak. And when you're really in there to, to, to long-term solve this is, uh, the cricopharyngeal myotomy. So the cricopharyngeal myotomy is where we're actually, I mean, right in the word, we're cutting that muscle, we're trimming the cricopharyngeal muscle. So what, what are your options there? Well, traditionally, we look back a couple of decades and, and the option was, you know, it was going to be a small incision in the neck and you're going to trim really three to five centimeters, believe it or not, the, the inferior constrictors through the cricopharyngeal muscle and then down into the cervical es esophageal fibers um, with a bougie in place um, in the esophagus so that you can kind of feel and it's really kind of an elegant procedure because you're in there. It's a small incision in the neck. You can kind of see and you feel the bougie underneath it and you watch those muscle fibers cut and then open up and release the pharynx. And so there's really a little bit of elegance to that. Um, but but as with, with many things, everything has kind of gone endoscopic. And so what's the beauty of endoscopic? Well, um, well, it's really cool because you're using lasers, right? Lasers are fun. Everyone likes, likes lasers. But also that patient doesn't have an incision on their neck. Um, and so that's really kind of come to the forefront of, of treatment and it's, it doesn't take that long and, and you can really get outcomes with this. So endoscopically, you kind of go suspend the patient, look at the, uh, identify the cricopharyngeal muscle, and then you have a couple of options on what laser to use. Um, and that's probably beyond the, the nuances of, of, of the talk here, but you know, m most often would be your carbon dioxide laser, which is uh, 10,000. 600 nanometers. And so you're using that um, to cut through the muscle. You're going to cut through the mucosa, then through the muscle. You're going to see the buccopharyngeal fascia. Remember, you don't want to cut through the buccopharyngeal fascia. Then you're going to end up in the retropharyngeal space, which is not the plan. So you're going to stay uh, anterior. You're going to see that nice kind of yellowish sheen, the buccopharyngeal fascia. Uh, you know, the other thing uh, that you can use is the thulium laser. And that's 2013 nanometers. And the thulium laser is really, really effective because it comes on it's pretty thin. You can get it on a long extension. You can kind of work with that. Uh, nowadays, the CO2 laser also can be either line of sight um, with a micro manipulator, or you can use it under a fiber. So that'll help you depending upon your angle and your exposure. I would be remiss to say that the latest kind of fad, uh, which I, I do actually find useful, is going back after you've done the myotomy, or even in some cases, a myectomy. And in, in, by a myectomy, I mean taking a little piece of that muscle out, the, the cricopharyngeal muscle, and sewing it up and sewing the mucosa back together afterwards. Uh, I think that's a little bit less um, discomforting for patients afterwards. And I, I suppose how you treat patients afterwards will vary. I guess if we polled all of my colleagues in laryngology, you'll, you'll hear a variety of responses. Some people leave a an NG tube in or a Dopoff tube in. Some people feed them right away. I, I tend to fall somewhere in the middle. I think that, it, you know, I'll give a patient a clear liquid diet that same night. Uh, so they'll have clear liquids that night till the next morning. And, and so long as they're improving and doing well, they'll have a really a soft food diet and able to leave um, the next day. So, you know, traditionally we used to keep people when we thought about doing the zankers and big myotomies in the hospital for a long time, but really now it's the same kind of thing. If they do well overnight, you can give them some soft foods and, and send them home. So 
really, uh, that's kind of the progression through all of the options you would have currently for treatment of these um, disorders. I would say that they're not all perfect for everyone, right? If, if a patient has had, you know, late radiation changes, diving in for a myotomy might not be your, your best option, you know, seeing where you can get with a dilation or even, even you know, I call them a pack of three or a serial dilations um, at predetermined intervals, say, you know, six weeks apart, you're going to see that if you can kind of break that fibrosis over time and improve that swallow. So, you know, this is kind of where there are these fine nuances and, and arts that we're sorting out with, with science to get better. And moving on to complications, um, maybe just talking first about the conservative interventions like uh, CP dilation or Botox even, um, what complications do you have to watch out for? Yeah, so really with, you know, if we start at the very, very beginning, observation, really you need to make sure that the patient's not going to be at risk for an aspiration pneumonia. So observation, you know, really that's your thing is are, are they worsening? I already talked a little bit about the terrible symptoms of having aspiration with chemodemervation because you end up with a, a flaccid obstructing uh, segment of the uh, cricopharyngeal muscle causing obstruction. But really, I think the issue with uh, Botox is if you end up with some of that Botox leaching out and getting in the inferior, inferior constrictor muscles. And I think this is the most common problem. And so these patients are super miserable. They'll come back right away. Um, they may be coughing with all their food, saying they can't eat. And this is like significantly problematic, um, as you as you might imagine. So what happens is, and, and if you want to visualize this, you're, we talked about the physiology of swallow, right? Your pharynx contracts and your pharyngoesophageal segment opens. Well, th- in, in this case, we're supposed to weaken the uh, cricopharyngeal muscle. But if you incidentally weakened the pharynx and not the CP muscle, now you have a weak pharynx against a still increasingly tonic uh, cricopharyngeal muscle, which could make the swallowing much worse. So, you know, that's really an important thing to think about and probably why denervation is a little bit less popular now, partly also because we know if we get you better with dilation, you can you can get people better. Now, as, as far as dilations, well, uh, largely, these are, are safe procedures. Things that can go wrong and happens, you can actually take a, a bougie and get a bougie to actually end up in a going through a small tear in the serosa, and, and you can get a perforation from a bougie. You can, in theory, get a perforation from a balloon. Um, and then th- those are both very uncommon but important to think about. I think the risk is that you need to do enough, meaning that when you do a balloon dilation, you should kind of see some small mucosal tears, right? You should see some incidents that you've done stretching. If you're seeing nothing, you probably maybe didn't stretch enough. And so it's it's a fine balance. But largely the issue with, with those conservative procedures is they're not permanent. And so that patient's showing back up in your clinic saying like, hey, doc, thanks for helping me, but uh, I'm back here with the same issue. Can you, What do I do now? Yeah. And when, when we talk about complications of CP myotomy, I think one of the most critical ones to consider is, uh, is obviously metastenitis. Would you mind touching on that? Yeah, of course. That's that's the feared complication, right? Is you're, you're doing a, a round. It's one of the first things you learn as, as an intern on the service is, hey, you got to make sure this patient had a myotomy. We got to make sure they don't aren't at risk for mediastinitis. And, and the problem is, is true mediastinitis, meaning you're looking at uh, mediastinal inflammation with a leak of um, all of the pharyngeal, esophageal secretions into the true mediastinum. 
is a devastating complication can have upwards of 50% survival. You know, however, um, anatomically, we don't, we don't always end up there, right? So we talked about the posterior limit of your dissection as you're, as you're making your dissection endoscopically being the buccopharyngeal fascia. So if you've just pierced the buccopharyngeal fascia a little bit, you might only end up in the retropharyngeal space. So for all intents and purposes, right, we've talked about retropharyngeal abscesses, I'm sure elsewhere. And so you're, you're kind of looking at that and that inflammatory process. Um, if you happen to, you know, get through and you've been overly aggressive and you've like tore right through the BC fascia, now you're through the, the ALR fascia in your danger space. Now you've got kind of a direct communication down there into the mediastinum. And now that's going to be a very problematic. And, and so this becomes problematic for a number of reasons. One, it's a hard area to get to. You're talking, um, trying to get a drain in there, have a neck incision, um, versus getting a VATS procedure with the, with the cardiothoracic surgeons involved to try to drain that area that's causing inflammation. Um, so it can be a very challenging area to reach. And it's one of those things you have to watch for. So careful, good surgical technique is really an important way of, of minimizing that, that risk. Things to think about is by the time the patient's kind of febrile, uh, you're really far down that pathway. One of the first things you're going to think about is saying, hey, uh, the patient's going to call. This is the classic story. Um, a patient patient complains to the nurse. Nurse calls whomever at night and says, "Oh yeah, the heart rate's up." And so immediately, what's everyone's response? Oh, that patient's uncomfortable. That patient's in pain. And so they're like, "Well, let's give them pain meds." But in this case, it's really important to stop for a second and just think about what you're doing and say, "Wait a minute, this patient had a myotomy. Do they have other associated symptoms of potential mediastinitis? So aside from the heart rate." Uh, being tachycardic, are they, you know, are they complaining of chest pain and like right in the sternum? So we think about some sternal chest pain, uh, and and then you know understanding what's going on is key because it's not something we want to rule out. You know, that's where do we, do we feel crepitus in the neck? Um, is there air? Is there air in the neck? Is this something that needs to undergo a uh, immediate uh, computed tomography scan, or is this something that we can we can kind of watch? And it, it's really important to to kind of think about that. One of the things that might happen is, you know, you might be really proud that, hey, man, that surgery went awesome. You know, that smooth, that tight UE, that tight UES is gone. It's, you know, sewed back together. We're, we're all happy. And then for whatever reason, the patient goes into a coughing fit in the their room in the post-op area and, and has a kind of a tear through there. And then that's, you know, hugely problematic. Now, interestingly, depending upon how, how you did it, that, that might be less or more of a, or just as much of a problem in the transcervical approach because in the transcervical approach, some people will leave a drain, other, others won't. Um, so that's a possibility of, of draining any of that leakage out. And so the, the, the issue is kind of opposite in the transcervical approach because you're coming from the outside in. Um, the question is, did you actually penetrate the, the mucosal lining? And so that's really the reason we keep these people in house to make sure we don't miss that just because it can be so devastating. You know, with that said, if you take some time and read kind of the, the really the nuanced literature, you'll, you'll come to see that the reality is most patients uh, whom have a leak get found soon enough that they don't actually develop true mediastinitis. And so that's an, a testament to what we could say is good doctoring. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to touch about in regards to complications were just differences differences between open and endoscopic CP myotomies. Um, what are the different complications you have to think about between those two approaches? Yeah. So great question. When we look at that, uh, first and foremost is a perforation, right? From from that, we just kind of 
overviewed that part just a little bit. Like on the, if you're doing transcervical, you're talking about perforation from, you know, uh, perforating through all the muscle and then the mucosa versus the other way where you've perforated through the mucosa, which you knew you were going to do through the muscle, which you were planning to do. And then the BC fascia into the neck, um, either way you worry about, um, things inside the neck. I think that the reality is when we, when we look back and we take our time to read the best available data, they're telling us that there's really no um, increased difference with mediastinitis one way or another. It's kind of a wash. There is a, a sense that the subcutaneous emphysema, the crepitus, would be more common with, with the endoscopic approach, which, which makes you know intuitive sense. But I think the real difference, though, is that by doing it endoscopically, you have a very low a chance of injuring the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which is which is a potential complication when you're making that incision and dissecting through the neck. So I think that really is the thing that separates the the endoscopic from the uh, transcervical approach. All right, and transitioning to our last portion, what what does long term follow up look like for these patients? Yeah, so long term follow up really depends on the intervention. So if if you've had these patients on a, a proton pump inhibitor for a month and a half or so, you got to see them back to determine did that help? Was that was that the issue? Um, that's one of the reasons that sometimes it's good to just get that objective data and say, hey, let's, let's just dis- determine if it's the reflux related. Let's let's go and do a pH study. Um, and and really, there's the what's the overall cost of medicine, right? Do we spend some money up front to get the diagnosis, and then, you know, we only see the patient twice, or do we, you know, kind of keep working and trying all these things and seeing the patient multiple times? It's kind of like today or tomorrow. When are we gonna When are we gonna dive in? Um, I I think that if you uh, look at someone who's had balloon dilations or or Botox or both. Um, you're going to see those patients back. So you, you often plan ahead. So if you do a Botox patient, you probably should bring them back in four months or so and just say, hey, how's it going? Let's see what you're doing. Plan a, a repeat dilation if that's going to be what's needed. Um, and so you kind of get those patients for a while. I have a lot of patients that get uh, balloon dilations for radiation-induced fibrosis. And so these people I, I know are going to go through a, a series. I'll plan ahead and say, hey, we're going to do this every you know, six weeks for a few times. See where we get. So kind of objectively look at where we started and where we get to. And you can do that with either a patient-recorded outcome measure like the E10 score, or maybe even start to look at pharyngeal constriction ratio on a, on a video fluoroscopic swallow study. But, you know, you're going to see those patients back to determine if they're going to need a repeat intervention. You know, depending upon your practice setup, you can have them reach out to a advanced practice provider like a PA or a nurse practitioner or just call you if they would need to be seen. Or you can kind of set something up in the books. It really depends on on the setup. And then, you know, one of the advantages both for the patient and, and your busy clinic is a cricopharyngeal myotomy patients after ensuring that they heal up after a really don't need much follow-up because they're they're often satisfied. You know, the things you want to make sure and that you deal with, um, coach through and, and help is any potential increase in the reflux sensation um, or aerophasia uh, that is not uncommon after doing those uh, myotomies. So I, I generally follow them up at least to make sure they've healed for, you know, a, over the course of a few months before I say, hey, high five, we, we, we've cured this problem. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Dion. I think this has been a really excellent discussion. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to mention before we transition to the summary? No, I, I, John, I really enjoyed being on here. And I think that I tried my best to stay out of the, the numerous rabbit holes that I find myself going down. But, you know, it's an area that I'm passionate about. And I think that as an otolaryngologist, regardless of our exact practice setting, be it in a private practice or a 
in an academic practice, there's an opportunity for all of us really to help these individuals. And so uh, the beauty of dealing with um, dysphagia, specifically as it relates to cricopharyngeal muscle dysfunction, is you get to do a lot of that doctoring and think through the issue and you can kind of tease out what the situation is and really help these people that aren't getting a lot of treatment from a lot of other sources and have probably seen a lot of people. So I really appreciate you having me on here and have an opportunity to talk about something that I'm passionate about. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you. It was a lot of fun having you on the podcast. All right. Well, uh, in summary of our discussion today, a description of the classic patient with CP muscle dysfunction is a bit elusive due to the wide variety of etiologies spanning everything from neuromuscular disorders to esophageal reflux. But classically, a patient with symptomatic CP bar is similar to the demographic of Zankers being more common in older age, and they will present with dysphagia, potentially with some other symptoms, if severe, even aspiration pneumonia. Um, Diagnosis requires exclusion of other causes of upper esophageal sphincter dysfunction um, and typically includes a video fluoroscopic swallow study that shows an obstructing CP bar in a symptomatic patient. Um, Conservative treatment options include watchful waiting for the asymptomatic patient, swallowing exercises such as Mendelssohn's maneuver, and treatment of underlying reflux disease. Um, There are a couple conservative interventions, including Botox, as well as esophageal balloon dilation. Oftentimes, these interventions are helpful to discern which patients might benefit from definitive management with a CP myotomy. And the CP myotomy that can be done either transcervically or endoscopically. And the primary postoperative complication you want to be keeping in mind is metastinitis. And lastly, follow-up is of course dictated by the type of intervention, but patients who undergo uncomplicated CP myotomies are often very satisfied and do not require long-term follow-up. Now we will move into the closing portion of the podcast while I will ask a question, pause for a couple seconds, and allow some time for you to consider the answer and then give the answer. So the first question for today is, which muscles make up the upper esophageal sphincter? The first muscle is the cricopharyngeus, second is inferior constrictor muscles, and the third is the proximal cervical esophagus. Next question is, what is typically considered the test of choice to evaluate for CP muscle dysfunction? The test of choice is the video fluoroscopic swallow study, which will often show an obstructing CP bar. What are the primary interventions for CP muscle dysfunction? The primary interventions are Botox injections, esophageal balloon dilations, or definitive management with a CP myotomy done either through a transcervical or endoscopic approach. Uh, Oftentimes, endoscopic is done with CO2 laser, and just recall, CO2 laser wavelength is 10,600 nanometers, and their chromophore is water. Last question, what is the primary complication you should be mindful of following a CP myotomy? The primary complication is, of course, metastinitis. Recall the layers of the pharynx include the mucosa, pharyngeal constrictor muscles, buccopharyngeal fascia. That leads into the retropharyngeal space, and you find the alar fascia, which then leads into the danger space, and finally the prevertebral fascia. Metastinitis occurs with disruption of the alar fascia, and infection can quickly spread down the metastinum. And the first clinical sign is often tachycardia. Patients may complain of chest pain. Well, that will wrap things up for today's podcast. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.